Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of In With The Old. We're a video podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's word, and helping you rediscover the Old Testament for the life of faith. So today we have a Q&A episode. These episodes are chances for you as our listeners and viewers to submit the questions that you have about the Bible. Today we have a good one. Normally we like to take about three questions at a time, but this question is probably going to take us the whole time to cover. Helping me out with this, as always, is my co-host, Dr. Tim Howe. Dr. Tim, how are you doing today? Well, Brian, I am doing very well, and uh, this is a topic today uh, that that really uh, stirs up some fire in people. It's it's one of the earliest mysteries yes. in in terms of the Book of Genesis and and what on earth is going on. Uh, so today we're talking about the Nephilim or the Nephilim, and so uh, Brian, I'll turn back over to you, and you can kind of orient us to this discussion, maybe a little bit of debate today, but a fun topic as we consider who were the Nephilim. Yeah, so this is a fun question. Although this is probably not the most contentious question we've ever covered, Tim, uh, <laughs> this is certainly a debate that I, that I usually like to say generates a lot of heat, not always a lot of light. So <laughs> listeners, we're talking today, the question came in asking us who or what are the Nephilim? Well, to answer that, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to read a couple verses for us, but it might help to have the passage in front of you. So in Genesis chapter 6, we've obviously gone through the creation story, the fall, and the generations proceeding from Adam and Eve. And now we're setting up the flood. As a preface to this flood story in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6, we get this kind of interesting aside, and I want to read it for us from the English Standard Version. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their, wa- uh, t- they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh." His days shall be 120 years. That alone has its own interesting interpretive things, but here's where our question comes in. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of who were of old, the men of renown. So it's that phrase, Nephilim. We're wondering who these things are. So they're mentioned here in Genesis 6-4. They are also mentioned again in Numbers 13.33. We're going to deal with them primarily here and then kind of cast an eye based on our answer, who or what we think is happening in Numbers 13. Now, anytime you come to the Old Testament and you see a word that ends in em, the Nephilim, the Seraphim, the Cherubim, Elohim, anything like that, what do we have going on? Well, we have what's called a transliteration. That means this is the actual Hebrew vocalization, the letters, if you will, being brought into English rather than the meaning of the word being brought across. This often happens with names or key terms that our translators think are important to preserve rather than giving a meaning for the phrase. So this clues us in right here. This is in the minds of your translators, an important term, a key term, a proper noun, if you will. But who are they? Well, Tim, uh, there are a couple different <laughs> interpretive options. I'll, I'll, I'll actually kick it over to you if you don't mind. Can you give us yeah. kind of just the generic, what are some maybe background 
bits of information we should know before we dig into our interpretive options. Yeah, absolutely, Brian. So this is where we uh, we get to enter into the minefield, right? Th th this is one of those passages that just in in you know a few verses presents probably a hundred interpretive questions. Uh, but when we try and figure out, okay, who are the Nephilim? As you mentioned, it's basically a straight transliteration uh, from Hebrew to English. And uh, the root of the word is, of course, the word uh, nephal, right, which is then made into a plural substantive, which is just a way to say that it's, it's made into a, a person or personages. Uh, the fallen ones is literally what Nephilim means. Uh, and so that doesn't really give us a lot of description. What, what does it mean, fallen ones? Uh, and then, of course, as we think about the way that that's kind of gone through the translation history, some translations following the Septuagint will say the giants that were in the land mm -hmm. of that time. And so uh, this is one of those things where we're like, well, giants? Who are the giants? And what does it mean that they were fallen? Uh, and then it says they were men of renown, which literally means men of name. So we've got a lot of translation issues. Then we've got a lot of uh, just mystery. And, and what does it mean that the sons of God were involved? So uh, it's kind of uh, an enigma wrapped in a mystery about something that's very intriguing. And of course, it takes place right before the flood. So uh, just again, to whet the appetite, what on earth is going on? Uh, that's really the question that we're trying to uh, wrestle with today. But here, here are some basic in interpretive options. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the LXX, right, the Septuagint translates it giants. And, uh, and as we think about that idea, we have a lot of Jewish history uh, that, that really helps us to see how many of the Jewish people thought of these giants or thought of these Nephilim. And that's where I'd like to start for just a second, Brian. Uh, when it comes to Jewish interpretive history, the the fascinating interpretation is they believed or seemed to believe that these were fallen angels, right? The sons of God often refers to angels in scripture. And so the Jewish tradition by and large says these were fallen angels, fallen sons of God uh, who fell because they became attracted to women. And, uh, and because of that attraction came and had children with those women. Uh, and so many people and many believers today believe this is one of the strangest, uh, you know, strangest things that's happened in all of human biological history, that you have fallen angels who are procreating with human women and they give rise to a race of giants or Nephilim or powerful people. Uh, and so that's why that interpretation, that, that strangeness of it, uh, really is what piques the interest of many of us. Now, I've gotten into a lot of things uh, that, that we were kind of saving for later, but Brian, I'll kick it back to you. Uh, <laughs> but, but as we think about this, uh, there's so much mystery. So let's try and pick it apart a little bit, and I'll, I'll let you head us off on that, Brian. Okay, yeah. So Tim actually mentioned in passing there two of the four kind of major interpretive options that we have, giants mm -hmm. or fallen angels. Mm -hmm. um, so let's let's unpack these a little bit. The first interpretive option is, as Tim said, giants. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation uh, that would have been operative during the time of Jesus, um, the Greek translation uses the word gigantes, which simply means giants, right? Um, there is some additional argument for this. Michael Heiser, uh, the late Michael Heiser, actually, he passed away this year. Um, mm -hmm 
this was one of his key points, among others, that he said, look, the word Nephilim, usually we view as being derived from the Hebrew verb nephal. And as Tim walked us through that, but he said it might instead be from the Aramaic Nephilim, which does mean giant. And that would make sense with why then the Greek translators picked the word giants instead of picking like a form of the verb to fall. So in this case, uh, the what's going on here is these are giants. These are um, imposing figures. These are men of renown, men of the name. File that away for later, because I think that's going to be something important in helping us understand the meaning of the passage. But what's going on here then is a description of this antediluvian or before the flood world where you have these just awesome beings of power and might, but look at how fallen they are. Um, mm. Starting in the third century, this became a popular interpretation amongst the church fathers. If you read their works on the books of Genesis, um, it is important to note that the word giant is not an ethnic description, but a physical description. Because remember, the flood is about to come and kill them all off. You may ask <laughs> then, who are the Nephilim in Numbers 13 that the spies see? Well, if it's a physical description, these are not the literal like descendants of these Nephilim here in Genesis 6. They're merely giants, which we do know with Goliath are there in the promised land. So that's kind of interpretive option number one. There's also some other arguments uh, about uh, derivations of the term. Listeners, Tim and I talked about this before the podcast started. This is a debate that we can get deep into the weeds very quickly. <laughs> so sorry, I'm kind of trying to self-edit and not go down all the possible routes we have here. We'll just say option one, as attested by the Greek reading and possibly an Aramaic uh, rendering of the term here, could lead us to say that these are giants. So that's option one. Option two is to say that these Nephilim, this is a term simply for fallen humans. These are the children of the Sethite and Canaanite lines of humanity. So rolling back a little bit, right? We come out of the fall. We have Cain and Abel. Abel dies and is replaced by Seth. You then have these kind of two lineages, right, Tim, going forward. You have mm -hmm. the children descended from Cain. We can call them Cainites. Um, or then the children of Seth, Sethites. The Nephilim in Genesis 6, listeners, if you still have your Bible open, seem to be implied, although no, not explicitly stated, but seem to be implied as the product of the sons of God and the daughters of man. Now, that phrase sons of God most often means an angelic referent. We'll deal with that in a moment. But it could instead be taken as a circumlocution for the sons of Seth right? The line that is following after God. They're the sons of God with the daughters of men being those descended from Cain. It's talking about what the story would mean then is that this is a story talking about how the people of Seth did not remain following after God, but we see the fall corrupting even them so that there is almost no one left that falls after God, save for our protagonist who we're about to meet, Noah. <laughs> right? So, that's how you could interpret this passage. Tim, maybe help us fill this out a little bit. The children of Seth versus the daughters of Cain interpretation. Yeah. So proponents of, of this interpretation would basically point at the genealogical nature of Genesis up to this point uh, that 
going all the way back to uh, basically the end of Genesis 3 and the beginning of Genesis 4, you have Cain and Abel. Abel dies. Seth is then given to Adam and Eve in place of Abel. And from there, you have the Cainite line that's described in Genesis chapter 4, uh, but it's really described in tragic terms. Cain kills Abel, but by the time you get to the seventh generation after Cain, you've got Lamech, who then is this mass murderer, uh, or at least mm -hmm. someone who, who is boasting about being a murderer, uh, as well as someone who really taunts his wives. Uh, in, in other words, Cain, he's really bad, but it gets worse from there. Uh, whereas Seth in the Sethite line, and we see this in, in Genesis chapter five, uh, there's at least some indications of righteousness. In particular, you have Enoch, who is in the Sethite line, who walks with God. Uh, and so you have this sense that the Cainite line is wicked. You've got at least some righteousness in the Sethite line, uh, at which point that is, is why perhaps the Sethite line would be described as sons of God, as opposed to the daughters of man. So just to clarify for our readers, um, Adam is described as being made in the image and likeness of God, both in Genesis chapter one, Adam's name is not mentioned in Genesis one, but then in Genesis five, his name is mentioned, arguably. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's said to be in the likeness of God, uh, which even something like Luke chapter three really seems to interpret as the son of God. Uh, so for our, our listeners, if you go to Luke three and you read the genealogy of Jesus, Adam is described as a son of God. So yeah. again, to summarize Genesis chapter six, it could be that sons of God refers to the Sethite line, the righteous line, or at least the line in which there is some righteousness uh, and daughters of men could refer to the Canaanite line. Now and, there's different, there's and, different. Yeah. Sorry, Tim, didn't mean to cut you off there. Go ahead, finish. Well, I was just saying there's different kind of uh, derivations of that and, and kind of different suppositions, but that's the basic line of thinking that Genesis is very mm -hmm. genealogical and therefore the most contextually appropriate interpretation is to continue that, that following of the Cainites and the Sethites. Yeah, and just to further um, kind of solidify that point, mm -hmm. we... Obviously, Adam is called the son of God in Luke, but you can even stay within the book of Genesis. Adam is made in the likeness of God. Mm -hmm. Seth is described as being in the likeness of Adam, right? right? So that, yeah. that's clearly an interpretation, a nuance already present in the story. So mm -hmm. calling Seth a son of God is certainly not a stretch with kind of the terminology already being employed. Now, why yes. would their offspring of these two lines be called the fallen ones? Well, if it is Nafal to fall, um, well, that makes sense. They have fallen away from God's plan. If it's from the other root, so this is not the Aramaic root, but uh, another potential Hebrew root is Nephilah, which refers to uh, stillbirth or abnormal birth. Um, something's been malformed. Something's untimely in this child. Um, it could be right a shot at like, look, this is not what humanity is supposed to be they are mingling these lines and that is itself problematic so as tim said there's a lot of different nuances we're kind of trying to throw a broad canvas over lots of little smaller interpretations um, mm -hmm. but this would kind of be the second major position our third major interpretation would have to do with interpreting these as kings of the antediluvian which is one of my favorite words so i'm sorry i keep <laughs> saying it but um before the flood world so sons of God, talk about with our fourth option, is used of angels quite frequently. 
It's also used, though, of kings, the sons of God. And this fits in an ancient Near Eastern context. Most cultures thought their kings were related to the gods. Pharaoh was the son of Ra, right? It makes sense. Well, what's this passage talking about? It does seem to be talking about the leaders of the world and showing that they are truly wicked people. So the sons of God here could simply mean kings. There's nothing more going on here than that. Um, they're wicked leaders and they are fallen, not in the sense of like angels fallen from heaven, but fallen in battle. That is a uh, usage of the term to fall elsewhere in the Old Testament. So these could simply be uh, as any fan of mythology talks about, right? The, the noble kings and heroes of old who have died almost always in battle in mythologies. And so it would be mm -hmm. fitting into that archetype. So giants mixing of the Seth and Canite lines, or the simply could be talking about the Kings and the rulers of the world before the flood. Anything I'm missing on that one, Tim, before we get to the contentious fourth option. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think so, except that I, I want to say, uh, and our, our listeners will probably intuitively understand this, those first three categories are not mutually exclusive, right? It, it Correct. could be possible that the, the children of Seth are also very large, at least from modern standards, and they're also kings. Uh, so it could be, you know, a combination of those. And that's where some of the interpretations get interesting, uh, because there's a, B, and C, but it could be a mixture of A, B, and C. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that's a good point. Part of me, uh, I, I begin pulling at Occam's razor. I'm like, I, I kind of <laughs> want a simple answer. I, I don't necessarily want to go to a complex answer unless I have reason to. But there's also mm -hmm. no objection necessarily to say, hey, it is a mix. They certainly don't exclude one another. Yeah. This fourth option, though, is mutually <laughs> exclusive. Yes. Uh, and this is the... I'm going to say the odd one, but it's odd because we're modern readers, but from a mm -hmm. historical perspective, this is the pro prominent and dominant position. Mm -hmm. And that is the view that the Nephilim are fallen angels, mm -hmm. or perhaps better, they are half angels because they mm -hmm. are the byproducts of angels and women. Mm -hmm. Now, you might be going, oh, hold up. They have gone off the deep end. Well, yes, <laughs> but let's talk about this interpretation. <laughs> And why someone might hold this. So in seminary, Tim, I got the opportunity to take a class with Tom Schreiner. Uh, he was doing a guest lecture at Phoenix Seminary. It was fantastic. Uh, mm -hmm. And he had this to say when we were talking about this passage. He said this, the nearly universal view of the Jewish people and in interpretation is that the Nephilim are demons. They mm -hmm. are products of both a human and a angelic right union. Um, mm -hmm. And that's certainly shocking to us. We have a very materialistic, I don't want to say anti-supernatural reading of the text, but we are products of the Enlightenment. We like to have things be very material focused. Um, but that is out of step with Jewish tradition. Now, why would they have such a weird interpretation? Tim, what are some of the data points that they would point to to say like, no, this makes sense that this is talking about a crazy and evil union? Yeah, well, I, I think the the linchpin of the argument is the description, the sons of God. Um, the B'nai Elohim. That, yep. The B'nai Elohim, that's right. So we see that, as Brian, you know well, uh, that's the description used of the angelic beings. Uh, and, and 
I'm using angel there. Angel there is the most generic term for a, a lot of different supernatural beings. Uh, the sons of God is the description that's used in Job when angels are clearly in view. Uh, there are other Job passages. Yep. Job 1 1. Yeah. Uh, Psalm 89, verse 6, the sons of God. Mm -hmm. There are undeniable, clear references where sons of God clearly means supernatural, angelic beings. Uh, and so, uh, interpreters, and this is what uh, the Jewish people did. They said, well, in sons of God in those situations are very, very clearly referring to angels and therefore sons of God in this scenario likely refers to angels as well. And so that seems very odd. Like what would it mean that the sons of God would come and, and take women for themselves? Uh, but they said, well, that's what the text says. And so it may seem weird to us, but that's what happened. Um, also, uh, the, the other reason that, that some look to here is, is to say, okay, well, if it is, uh, you know, demons procreating with women, then that gives us at least some of the reason as to why God sends a worldwide flood. Uh, in, in other words, he's got to eradicate this, this fallen race uh, because, at least on some interpretations, those demons weren't simply or merely trying to procreate with women for lustful reasons, but they recognized that God was using these humans to lead toward redemption. So basically, they were intentionally trying to spoil the seed of humanity. Uh, and so the sons of God were engaged in a nefarious plot to, to really— uh, to to deny and destroy God's plan of salvation. So they procreate with women and therefore dilute or pollute the seed. Um, it gives a reason for a worldwide flood, uh, which is that God has to start over with a pure human race. That's at least part of the interpretation and, and part of the reason that people read it that way. Yeah, because the Nephilim aren't explicitly listed as the cause for the flood, but it is not a stretch to go why and right as this author is putting the flood narrative together we are given a prologue and the backstory as to why the flood is going to come right god mm -hmm. sees the state of the world and says this has to stop well we know that the intention of man's heart is on sin continually that does not change with the flood so mm -hmm. what you could phrase it this way. What was then that is not now? Because it's not mm -hmm. just sin. There seemed to be something else. And so this yeah. view does have the advantage of going, that would make some sense. Now, Tim, our listeners might be following us and going, okay, I get sons of God can mean angels. And that seems to then be an interpretation. But, uh -huh, mm -hmm. but we have the New Testament. <laughs> Jesus, in talking about marriage, says angels do not marry nor are given in marriage. Yes. Case closed. It can't be angels, right? Or can it? Maybe I'm splitting hairs, but Jesus says angels don't marry. Mm -hmm. We are all keenly aware marriage is not what produces babies. It might be the, uh, the, the proper union and proper place for that to take place, but yeah. marriage is not the same as sexual intercourse. Right. It is interesting. I don't want to push this too far, but people that would go down this uh, interpretive option would say every time an angel appears, it looks like a man. Um, mm -hmm. It's always described with masculine features. Mm -hmm. So that's somewhat interesting. You could also argue if you're looking to new Testament support for this reading, I didn't have this in our notes, but I want to call attention to Jude. Mm -hmm. Hey Jude. No, no, I can't sing. <laughs> um, but uh, Jude uh, and specifically Jude six, 
Remember, Jude's a single chapter, so there's no chapter and verse. Um, but it is interesting. Jude is very keen with the Old Testament, trying to like weave together the narrative. Here's something interesting he says. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now, this is interesting because he cannot, he cannot be talking about the general fall of the angels. Because did you notice these angels are kept under chains? These are not uh, Satan and his forces. This is something else. These are angels who did not keep their proper place, but left. In the very next verse, it's going to be Sodom and Gomorrah. So some interpreters would say, look, we do have this kind of not just sin, but sexual sin and impropriety kind of running through. Is this the story Jude is drawing from? Anyway, so these are some of the, the points that people would argue. It's the dominant historical position for uh, at least Judaism. You have some verse support. Um, anything else we should consider here, Tim, before we kind of give a recap of the views and maybe put out our views before we talk about what's the point of the passage in the first place? Yeah, I think the one thing I want to add is when we say it's the dominant Jewish position, we're thinking of particular books uh, that are part of what we would call the Jewish pseudepigrapha, uh, where there are a lot of different books that that really go back and seek to fill in some of these details. You know, we, we just have a handful of verses that describe this, but a book like First Enoch, right? Or uh, there's, there's mm -hmm. many others uh, that go into detail about who these demons were and what they were trying to do and what their rebellion looked like. And, and this is where it's easy to get kind of sucked into that rabbit hole. Uh, but those are the, those are the works that we're describing in other words, this is some, not something we have to guess uh, what Jewish people thought of this. There are many works that go into vivid detail about all of these things. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And we've talked about these kind of second temple writings before here is a place mm -hmm. where they do help even if we don't mm -hmm. view them as inspired scripture they do let us know what what were jewish people thinking <laughs> at this time how would they interpret these passages and we yeah. do see that this is their clear interpretation mm -hmm. so although you might find different nuances we're going to say there are four broad categories of thought when it comes to the nephilim they could be giants physical description they could be uh the sons of cain and seth they could be kings or they could be fallen angels. Now, the one thing we haven't talked about is how numbers fits into this, because mm -hmm. the Nephilim are seen by the spies in the land of Canaan. Now, if they're giants, it's a physical description. There's no actual connection between these two groups. It's simply a uh, descriptor, right? They are gigantic people. If it is the line of Seth and Cain, um, that becomes a more interesting question. Who or what are they seeing? Why are they using this term? Same mm. with kings, same with fallen angels. All three of those, it would seem to go, well, how, what's the connection to the book of Numbers? Um, for, I think, all three of these views, Tim, the way you would respond is by saying the spies are lying. Now, that does seem to fit, at least in my mind, when I read the Numbers account. These are the spies who are going to say, we don't trust God. We're not going into the promised land. And they mm -hmm. bring a, uh, I don't have the Hebrew in front of me, but I think it's a raw, a bad report, an evil report. Um, why are we assuming they're telling the truth? If they want to keep Israel out, what better way than to pull out a boogeyman? Doesn't mm -hmm. matter if it's real or not, right? You're pulling out this horrifying 
monster of the antediluvian world. I'm going to keep using it, listeners. You can't stop me. <laughs> to 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 shut people down. So in that case, there is no connection because it's a lie. If it's giants, they're actually probably telling the truth because there are giants in the land. So mm -hmm. uh, that's, I think, how you'd answer, handle the numbers question for Nephilim for all four of the views. Yeah. Am I forgetting anything, Tim? I don't think so. So we okay. need a we need a big drum roll. What's the big point? Right, so and uh, and then we'll give our own views of what's going on here. <laughs> All right, so drum roll. Listeners, we didn't put down our own interpretation here. So this is kind of live. So Tim, let's say there's a gun to your head. And I want to say before we get started, this is not a tier one issue for either of us. We're not going to die on this interpretive hill. Um, so just putting that out there. But let's say there's a gun to your head, Tim. Which of the four views today do you find most convincing? Uh, well, the key uh, key word there is today, but I'll, I'll tell yes. you I'll tell you how I read it. Um, I think that the children of Seth and the children of Cain are still primarily in view in this text, and here's why: um, for the reasons we talked about, Genesis as an entire book is divided up into sections uh, by Toledo, which is just a word that means in the generations of or the generations of the generations. Of, yeah. These are the generations. Right. So the entire book from beginning to end is divided up looking through the lens of generations and genealogies, at which point, starting in Genesis 4, the question becomes, what is going to happen to these children of Adam and Eve? What is going to happen to the children of God? Uh, and as I explained before, the Canaanite line has a bad start and a worse, fin a worse finish. It's awful. It's yeah. wicked. And by the time you reach Lamech, in, in the end of uh, Genesis 4, he is absolutely, ab totally wicked, um, and he's proud of it. And in particular, his wickedness takes the form of power, uh, and I see that in the taunting of the wives. He takes power in an illegitimate way, as well as in the form of polygamy. He takes for himself multiple wives, and in doing so, flaunts the model that God has given him. So that's the Canaanite line. Uh, but the Sethite line, at least... It to some degree, it takes a lot longer for them to reach that bottom, to reach that wickedness. But what I think we have in Genesis 6 is the Sethite line. In other words, the sons of God, the Sethites, they are eventually going to fall prey to the exact same temptations as their Canaanite cousins. Uh, and and mm. here's why I, I, I want to argue for that position, Brian. Because of the way that these particular verses are written, it says the sons of God saw the daughters of man, that they were beautiful, and they chose from among all of them wives for themselves. Now, you know, Brian, that the language of choosing wives is, is kind of a common description of, of, choose, uh, of picking a wife or finding a wife, but I, I think there's more going on here, and here's why. It says they chose from among all the women. Uh, in other words, I think this text is describing polygamy, and I think, by the way, that's true no matter which one of these positions that you take, because think of it like this. Sure. E even if I take the view that these are like half demons, right? If, if these demons were incited by lust, which is, by the way, what it says, they saw they were beautiful. So if we take that seriously, that they were incited by lust to go and, and have sexual relations with these women's, why on earth would a fallen angel who's already rebelled, already fallen, why would they limit their sexual appetites to one woman? They wouldn't. 
in, in other words, I think polygamy, no matter what here is in view, and I think that language of taking wives actually has a, a forceful connotation. Uh, so to sum it up, I think the Sethites, the sons of God, essentially uh, fell prey to the exact same things that the Canaanites were doing. The Sethites give up any sense of righteousness. It took them a little bit longer to get there, but eventually they fall prey to the same sins, the sins of oppression, abusing power, the sin of polygamy, of de defying God's created order. And because of that, eventually it gets so bad that there is no distinction. The Sethites and the Canaanites, as you mentioned earlier, God looks at them and he's grieved. Why? Because both the chosen line as well as the wicked line both of them devolve into wickedness. Both of them fall completely and totally away from God so that God can look and he say, I was grieved that I made humanity. Why? Because every inclination of the thought of the heart was only evil continually. In other words, mm. given the textual parameters, I think uh, the focus of, of Genesis 6 is on the Sethites. We know that. Why? Because it's in the Toledo of Adam through Seth. Um, and, and I think Genesis 6 is referring to Canaanites and Sethites. I'll add this one thing, and then I'll kick it over to you, Brian. I think it's ironic that it says the, the men of renown or the men of name are never named. We don't know their name. In other words, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that even that phrase is to say, oh, yes, these are people who we, we might say like this. These were people who thought they were ruling the world. But in reality, we don't even know who they are. Uh, so, so I do tend to combine uh, children of Seth with kings because there had to have been mm -hmm. leaders. There had to have been kings. I think there were men who came to rise to power, but like Lamech, basically flaunted the commandments of God, did not care at all about uh, who they opposed or what they did. They were going to do what they wanted. And essentially, uh, it was a, a total rebellion against God. It was, it was a time of anarchy wickedness where men did what they want and basically said, God, who are you to tell us otherwise? That's, that's my interpretation. So Ryan, okay. uh, what about you? Well, just before I answer mine, because I like that interpretation, Tim, mm -hmm. my struggle, cause I do, I do take a different option here, not because I disagree with anything you said. I think that actually is the most compelling or one of the most compelling arguments for this passage. Yeah. But then I don't know what to do with numbers 13. Mm -hmm. What are they pulling at at the spies? How would you answer that real quick? I'm just curious. Yeah, I, I I'm Sorry not sure spot, exactly how I would answer I that. Curious. No, here, here's here's what I would say. Uh, if if it's true that these men became mighty, in other words, if it's true that they were Sethites but also kings, uh, I I think it's it's also possible that those kings really were men who were feared or men who had incredible military power. Uh, they were the legends of old, okay. right? They were the men of renown. And so I think it still could have been a, a boogeyman in that sense. I just don't think it was, you know, the demon spawn boogeyman uh, or even, you know, and maybe it was, maybe there was a physical difference. We don't have time to get into this, but I think before the flood, uh, there was a major physical difference in the composition of the world, very likely before the flood. So it's very sure. possible that, that these men, and we read this, by the way, in the genealogy of the ages, and of course, huge debate, is that symbolic it's or is it literal? I take it to be literal. That's another episode. Uh, but if it's true, then perhaps <laughs> these were physically imposing men, and think of it like this, who were so physically strong that they could impose their will 
on men who were less strong or on women who, mm. uh, as we read in Genesis four, again, uh, were really in one sense, the, the objects of violence, at least with Lamech that there's, in other words, there's no indication that this is consensual sexual relations. I, I don't read that in the text. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I think it's definitely a, a nefarious, whichever right. interpretation, this is not happy, happily ever after marriage, no matter right. what. Exactly. Exactly. So I want to, I want to hear it, Brian. I want to hear it. Thank you for that. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Well, so Tim, like you said, it's important that we qualify this as today because, um, <laughs> I think it in prepping this and in going through all the interpretive options, reading things again, I think I've vacillated a couple times. Mm -hmm. So I already said, I think Tim presents a very strong view and I'm pretty tempted to go with it, but that's not where I'm landing right now. Yes. I do go with the fallen angel view and here's why. Mm -hmm. So um, trying to tie through the narrative, there's definitely a strong genealogical line. Uh, and emphasis in the book of Genesis. That's a key point. Another key point, though, another key theme is the union between heaven and earth, what mm -hmm. was in the garden and what is lost. Mm -hmm. I think we have here part one of a three-part narrative scene that is talking about how do we reunite these things because that is the hope of humanity. That's the hope of the book. How do we bring back together what originally was? So here we have the sons of God, which I do look at and go, it is overwhelmingly in other parts of scripture referred to angels. Mm -hmm. Tim, I didn't, off the top of my head, I think this is the only time that this phrase is used in Genesis. So we can't go like, how did Genesis use it? I think this is the only time we get it, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. But um, so I can look at uh, Job twice does this, Psalm 89, obviously, the Ben Elohim, um, it's angels. And so I go, that is the most natural reading. I already talked a little bit about the objection that angels don't marry. I don't think that actually holds water because I don't think this is marriage going on. It's something mm -hmm. much more nefarious. Um, I think Jude, if that's what's happening here, Jude is talking about these angels. Mm -hmm. But the, in the fall, they're the fallen ones. But what we have here is that they are described as men of the name, men of mm -hmm. renown. But the name is important. Because mm. that phrase is going to appear in the next couple chapters two more times. Mm -hmm. You go to the Tower of Babel. Why do they build that tower? They say, come, let us gather together. They're denying God's command, right, uh, to Noah to go and fill the earth. They go, no, we have to stay together lest we be scattered. Come, let us make a name for ourselves. Mm -hmm. God obviously thwarts that. And then in Genesis chapter 12, in the call of Abraham, behold, I will make your name great. See, there's this interesting kind of name, name, name showing up. And what I think is happening here, narratively speaking, is we see attempts to reunite heaven and earth. With the story of Nephilim, we see the attempt to lure heaven down, to entice the heavenly realm to come to earth. That causes the flood. It goes horribly. We then see the reverse in Babel. We see the attempt to bring earth up to heaven by building this tower. That scatters the languages and scatters the people. It's only through God's plan with Abram, this kind of restart, the final restart leading to the New Testament. It's only there that we get the name, the name we're searching for, this connection, this union of heaven and earth. So as I look narratively, I go, it, it would fit with these being weird creatures. Now that is clearly odd, clearly weird. And I don't deny yeah. that. Um, 
that is how I piece it together. That's what I think is happening here. Um, so that that's where I land today. Ask yeah. me maybe again tomorrow and I'll, I'll have a different take, Tim. But uh, yeah, that's where I'm at. So let me let me ask you a couple of questions, Brian. How would you Please interpret? W- would you would you see the sons of God seeing that the women were beautiful? Do you take that to be physical attraction? As, as in, like they are lured or allured right, down right. to earth. Yeah, that 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 the fallen angels were physically attracted to the beauty of women. I take it that they were attracted to something. And so okay. you yeah. talked about um, when we first mentioned this, this mm-hmm. attempt to like, oh, we can really kind of subvert the plans of the most high here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure it means beauty as in their physical beauty. And because you mm-hmm. could read that and go like, wait, are you blaming the women for like enticing the angels down? I don't mm-hmm. think that's the intent of the passage. I think as you said, there's a malevolent edge to what is happening. So Mm -hmm. I think it's a by force. We are trying to corrupt the plans of the most high and like force this reunion between heaven and earth by bringing heaven down. So, um, no, I don't think there's a a beauty that feels very, that would fit ancient near Eastern contexts in some stories, but that also feels very pagan and not in keeping with any other part of scripture that I can think of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I'm trying to remember, it's been a long time since I saw the uh, Russell Crowe version of Noah, but from what I, I kind he of remember- He takes the giants view, doesn't he? Yeah, well, it's it's a giants mixed with the fallen angels, and but it, but I almost That's think right. it's, it's yeah. almost like a Promethean kind of like we were trying to help them out, you know? Like we tried rather, to give you fire, yeah. Right, well, and, and well, we, it, we've seen that you have fallen away from God and angels in an attempt to try and help, you know, come down and say, well, you know, maybe we can- you know, rather than being nefarious or malevolent, it's almost like, hey, we're going to try and, you know, bring you back. But they did it in the wrong way because they produced mm-hmm. these then giant demon babies who, you know, hearts are evil, but now have physical characteristics that that present no limitations for their evil. But let me let me throw this, Brian, before we get off here. And this is so easy to talk about, right? We've already we've already gone long, but uh, one question in an article that I read, and this was several years ago, was a question posed: if if this somehow was uh, the the nefarious deeds of the devil, so to speak, you know, then in what situation, if that's true, how could God have held humans accountable for something that wasn't truly their fault? Um, and that gets into the weeds of, of a lot of things, but I at least found that question compelling. And, and you mentioned Occam's mm-hmm. razor earlier, you know, for me, when I think of the Bene Elohim, the sons of God, I think Genesis five, like the context of Genesis five being so close to this, that Adam is made yeah. in the likeness of God. Uh, Seth is made in the likeness of Adam to me, contextually with it being in that same exact Toledo, right? I mean, the exact same unit. I, I, I think there's a weight to saying, well, unless I am absolutely sure that supernatural beings enter the scene here, the only beings that we've even seen created to this point, at least described in the Genesis account, are the sons of God, a.k.a. Adam and then his, his line. So at least that's, that's how I see, yes, uh, I hear Job. Yes, I hear Psalms. Uh, 
but at least in Genesis, it seems like that euphemism at the beginning of Genesis 5 should govern the way that we interpret Genesis 6. Uh, but Brian, I will give you the last word and let you land the plane for us uh, as we think about <laughs> think about the mysteries of the Nephilim. Yeah, so my response to that would be that we do have the angelic realm already in view in Genesis 1. They're in the creation story. <laughs> Touche. Um, and boy, we're going to go deep. I mean, we can't go too deep there. But um, even the creation of the, the stars in the heavens, mm -hmm. the, in context, right, are they thinking, you know, burning balls of gas in, in space? Mm -hmm. Or are they thinking of these are angelic beings being created? So I think they are in and around the story to this point. So I don't think mm -hmm. they're coming out of nowhere. Um, but that is... Tim, you hit on, I think, my key problem with this interpretation, um, that it doesn't feel as natural here, to the, to your point. Um, Sons mm -hmm. of God seems to fit Seth, but thematically, it seems to fit fallen angels with this, with Babel, and with Abram, um, mm -hmm. with what Jude is referring to. Um, and so this is, I, I listeners, to come back, this is part of the, the beauty, and something I hope you get from this is... Here we are, two people who have devoted a substantial portion of our lives digging into the text, and we're still like, you know what? I can we get a clear answer? Um, and we have material. We we think through it. We wrestle with it. Um, but at least for me, Tim, this is what brings me back to the text and brings me back to this conversation with you because I love thinking about these things. I love having my ideas challenged. And I love learning more about God and help how I can piece His text together. Yeah. And so where we want to end this. Uh, episode listeners is not just going, well, here's your interpretations, have fun, have a great day, but trying <laughs> to reland the plane on going, whatever interpretation you take here, there is a key point that mm -hmm. this is the world fallen and walked away from God. This is the world in need of a savior. And this is showing human condition left mm -hmm. to our own devices. We don't seek after God. We seek to become our own gods. Mm -hmm. And, that needs to be corrected. That will never reunite heaven and earth. It is only going to be through God as he commissions Abram uh, and sends him out. In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, right? We are pushing mm. forward to get to that. So this shows, I think, the outworking of sin left unchecked. And then we get the flood and we get the reset. So um, a key point, I, at least I want to leave us with, Tim, Let's not miss the forest for the trees. Let's yeah. not miss the clear picture of what the flood narrative is doing as it pushes us forward. Um, these are interesting options. At the end of the day, this is not a tier one issue. There are some interesting implications maybe, um, but yeah. let's not miss the clear teachings for the sake of uh, interesting ideas. But this was a good question. Thank you, listeners, who uh, the listener who sent this in. I hope this has given you some food for thought. Uh, and I hope you join us next time as we tackle a few more of your key questions. Tim, anything you want to say as we sign off today? Yeah, it's been a good conversation. And, uh, and I agree with you, Brian, you know, at the end of the day, whatever view we hold here, uh, to me, the reminder is whether it's the sinfulness of man or the powers of heaven, God's plan of salvation is going to continue uh, to work itself out. So there is no power in heaven or on earth that can prevent uh, God's salvation from coming. He is the mm. most high. And uh, ultimately, we know that his His plan uh, is even now coming to fruition in our lives. So thank you, Brian. Excellent takeaway point. 
Listeners, thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next week. And until then, stay cool and stay old.